Welcome to First Baptist Belton. By God's grace, we aim to be a gospel-centered people that know Jesus intimately, serve Jesus passionately, and share Jesus globally. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoy the following message. All right, good morning. It is good to be with you this morning. I hope you're doing well. Everybody have a good restful weekend. Good. Everybody do yard work? Yeah, you can't help but be doing yard work in this beautiful weather, can you? I know, I spent all day yesterday, I, I think there's got to be something to be true about the devil is in the irrigation system. Because, man, I spent all day head to toe, just muddy as can be, trying to get these silly sprinklers working. But nevertheless, the grass is growing, and we're heading into spring, so it is good to be with you. For those of you worshiping online, thank you for, for joining us. Uh, now, I've already done in my, what, 12 weeks as pastor here, I've already done two things that everybody says don't do. You know what those are? Talk about money and talk about worship. And I want you to notice something. All of you are still here. <laughs> so thank you for being here. It's good to be with you. I'm glad. And so today I've got some good news and bad news. You ready? The good news is we are finishing up our book series in Nehemiah. So that's the good news. Bad news so we're finishing up Nehemiah. I've really enjoyed it. I've had a great time. Uh, and so anyway, it's, it's, it's been a great series. Thanks for putting up with me. I'm thankful for it. Now, I don't know about you, but I love a good movie. Are my movie lovers in here? Handful of you? Yeah, I love a good movie. I do. Over the years, I, had, I think of some of my favorite movies, and a question has surrounded some of the cast, specifically the younger ones, right? I think of the series Home Alone. No matter how many times I have seen that movie, I can still belly laugh with the best of them. It's hilarious. And I think, man, whatever happened to Molly, Ma, Macaulay Culkin? Just so you know, it's hard to pronounce and it's even more difficult to spell. I, I had to Google that. I'm ashamed to admit it, but I did. But Macaulay Culkin, whatever happened to him? Or whatever happened to Jane Withers? Maybe you remember her. She was the little girl who played, filled me in the blank. Anybody know? Shirley Temple. Oh, everybody says, all oh, right. Whatever happened to her? Well, I've got good news for you on that. I, I found out what happened to her. This is pretty cool. This is some trivia for you. Um, Jane Withers ends up being named the United States ambassador to Ghana and Czechoslovakia. That's pretty powerful. That's, that's a big deal going from Shirley Temple to the ambassador for US, or the U.S. ambassador in Ghana and Czechoslovakia. But not only that, here's what else she does. She also served as chief of protocol for the United States. Pretty, pretty cool. And so this morning, you're probably asking yourself, why in the world are we asking this question? Well, there's a reason. There's a reason for us to ask that question. This morning, as we close the book of Nehemiah, the question that we are gonna be asking this morning is, where are they now? So what happened in Jerusalem? How does this all wrap up? Now, what you have to know and what you have to remember is that Nehemiah had spent 12 years in Jerusalem. 12 years he spent in Jerusalem, helping them rebuild the wall. 12 years, and sure, 52 of that was spent rebuilding the wall, but then he stays around to lead them, to care for them, to shepherd them for 12 whole years. And at the end of that time, Nehemiah felt the calling to go back to Persia where he's gonna fulfill his commitment 
uh, right, to serve under the, the authority of King Artaxerxes as his cupbearer. And then after an unspecified period of time, we don't know how long it was, Nehemiah comes back to Jerusalem. And there he stumbles into Jerusalem and he's asking that very same question. Where are they now? What happened after all these years that we've spent rebuilding the wall, rebuilding the temple, coming together, where are they now? Okay, and so in order for us to see where they are now, I want us to jump back and look at where we've been. So what all have we covered over the last 12 or, or so weeks? Okay, so if you would go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah 13. That's where we're gonna be is Nehemiah 13. And while you're turning there, I want to just remind you of where we are and where we've been. So first and foremost, you've got to remember that the story of Nehemiah doesn't begin with Nehemiah. It actually begins back, in, quite frankly, back in the garden. When Adam and Eve chose to take a bite out of that apple, that's where all of this begins. And so the story of Nehemiah actually begins with disobedience. It's a story that, 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 that is all about obedience and the unfaithfulness of, God, of, of God's people. And, and so God allows, what ends up happening is God allows the Babylonian army to come into Jerusalem, right? He promised, he said, hey, if you're unfaithful to me, if you're disobedient, then I'm gonna allow the, I'm gonna push you into exile. And so that's exactly what God does. Babylonian army comes in, sweeps Jerusalem, destroys the city, her walls and the temple. And then the people flee, flee into exile, okay? Now in 539 BC, the people come together, which by the way, 539 BC, remember these are real people, this is, these are real events, okay? So in 539 BC, the people come together to rebuild the temple. Only they just don't have enough in the tank to rebuild the city walls as well. And so the temple is rebuilt, but they're still living in the ruins from the Babylonian army. Okay, And so then God, he calls Nehemiah, this young guy from Persia, who's going to come and he's going to unite the people of God together, right? Call them to be all in. Uh, that's where we got this series all in from. That's where it comes from, right? Nehemiah comes in, he calls this group of people to be all in, to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. And they do that in just 52 days. What an accomplishment. It's a testament to God's faithfulness, no doubt, it's a testament to the work of the Holy Spirit and his power. And also it's a testament to the people's grit and determination. And yet nevertheless, we learn this in chapter one and it's kind of been the theme that runs through the whole story is that over the course of our time together, we have learned that the ruins were indicative of the fact that the people of God living in Jerusalem were living apart from him, apart from his word, apart from his authority and apart from his will. And you see that in a handful of different ways. If you remember this, you see that in the fact that they had abandoned God's word, right? They had intermarried the culture. They had failed to remember the Sabbath. And then ultimately they had ne neglected to support God's work on earth. And so the people are living in ruins. Nehemiah calls them to be all in. And that leads us to chapter 8. Chapter eight is that moment where the people gather together for a worship service. And you might remember this when uh, Ezra, Ezra the scribe gets up before the people and he opens the word. And as he opens the word, all of the people stand up and worship, right? And we talked about the fact that God's word must be central to everything that we do, the way we act, the way we talk, the way we work, the way we worship. This is what drives us 
in worship. It's God's word. And then that leads us to chapter 10. Chapter 10 is where all of the people gather together and they obviously have made great success. They've accomplished the wall and then they begin making covenants. And there's three covenants that they made. You may recall these. First and foremost, they covenanted to return to God's word and a life in pursuit of holiness. So that was their first covenant, right? Their second covenant was that they had covenanted to remember the Sabbath. And we talked about what a true Sabbath or true rest really is. Anybody remember? Anybody remember? How many have been resting? <laughs> so true rest is simply taking time out of our day, out of our calendar, where we simply remember, where we reflect, and we rest in God, His goodness, His faithfulness to us. And that takes various different forms based on how you're wired and your unique way that God has, has, has created you, okay? And so then the third thing is that they had covenanted to support God's work on Earth. So those are their three covenants, okay? Now, after chapter 10, Nehemiah pretty much concludes his time in Jerusalem. He concludes his time, feels like, okay, we've done everything we can do in Jerusalem, and so he makes that journey back to Persia. And again, after an unspecified amount of time, we don't know how long has gone, come and gone, but Nehemiah is gonna return back to Jerusalem, and that's where we find ourselves in chapter 13, is his return to Jerusalem wondering, where are they? Now, here's what he sees, here's what he finds. This is what we're gonna read in the story today, okay? You ready? Man, yeah, I'm training you well. I'm training you well, here we go, all right. Here's what he sees. The people are yet again living in the spiritual ruins where he found them. So after all of that 12 years of him pouring his life into the people of Israel, calling them to be all in, what he finds when he shows up are four specific things that you need to know and make note of. And here's the first one. He shows up in Jerusalem. He's hoping for a beautiful reunion of the people. And what he finds, number one, is that they have desecrated the temple. They've desecrated the temple. They've gone right back where they started before. In verse four of chapter 13, here's what the text says. Now before all of this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God, so he's in charge of the temple, and who was related to Tobiah. Notice that, we're gonna talk about that here in a minute. He prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, and the, con the contributions for the priests. And so here's what happens, right? Tobiah shows back up. I think maybe the only person who is more persistent than Nehemiah might just be Tobiah. Seems like time after time we run into this guy named Tobiah. So he shows back up, but unfortunately, here's what ends up happening. Here's what happens. Tobiah, who is related to Eliashib the priest, the man who's responsible for the temple and caring for it, what he does is he says, you know what, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna clear out an entire storage area where we keep all of the elements for worship. It served as a bank, a savings bank for, uh, to care financially for all of those who serve in the temple. We're gonna get rid of that and we're gonna move the enemy of God into the storage room. Maybe you've heard that phrase that if you let the camel put his head under the tent, eventually the camel will be in with you and you won't have any more room in the temple or in the tent. That's what had happened here. 
is that Eliashib allowed the enemy a foothold. He allowed him to step into the temple in such a way that there was no longer room for the people of God. So Nehemiah shows up, he sees what's happened, and he begins to clean house. We're gonna talk about that here in a minute, but what I want you to focus on is number two, is not only had they uh, desecrated the temple, but also they failed to support the work of God. They, they, they failed to support the work of God. You'll see that in verse 10. Nehemiah, he says, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled to their fields. So here's what's happened, right? So Nehemiah shows up, he recognizes they've desecrated the temple. They've literally gotten rid of all of the elements that they use for worship that would be similar to us saying, you know what, uh, man, well, you know that storage room that we use to keep all of the elements for uh, the Lord's Supper and all of those things? Hey, you know what, we don't need those elements anymore. Let's just get rid of those. Hey, you know the baptistry up here that we, where we baptize new believers? Hey, you know what? We don't need that anymore either. And that closet, these closets up here with, with all the elements for that, you know what? Let's get rid of those too. That's ultimately what has happened here. But on top of that, then they failed to support the work of God, which to the degree that the people who were serving and doing the work of ministry in the temple could not afford to continue the work. They had to literally go home, back to their fields, so that they could support their families. So on top of this, this, this idea of, hey, you know what, let's get rid of all of the elements of worship, not only that, but hey, let's get rid of our personnel budget, that staff, well, we don't need them. And then to make matters worse, really to what they're, what they're saying there is, hey, you know what, we don't, we don't need any of those things, we might as well shut the doors, we might close, close shop and, and let's, let's end it all together. And so that's what's happening in Jerusalem. And then number three, here's what they did. Number three, they disregarded the Sabbath. Verse 15, the text says, in those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses uh, on the Sabbath and bringing heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. Why, why were they doing this? was for the purpose of doing business on the Sabbath. And so rather than honoring God, they ignored him. They ignored the Sabbath and they refused to remember, they refused to reflect, and they refused to rest in God. See what this is, it's a demonstration that they had moved so far from God that they were literally communicating to him, God, I don't need you. We are good on our own. That's where the people were in Jerusalem. And number four, and perhaps the worst of all, number four, they intermarried with the culture. They had intermarried with the culture. You'll see that there in verse 23. Here's what the text says. In those days, also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. And here, know this, and they could not speak the language of Judah but only the language of each people. You know, we've, over the course of our time together in the book of, of Nehemiah, we've talked about this theme where Nehemiah comes and says, hey, do not, marry, do not intermarry with the culture. It's been something that's kind of come up and up and up through our series. And the reason for that is because God, who knows all things, who knows all things, he understood that because of the human condition, his people, if given the right opportunity, would be persuaded by other religions. 
And so God said, no, I want you to be holy. I want you to be set apart. I want you to be set apart for me and only me. And so do not intermarry with other religions. And yet what did they do? They intermarried. They intermarried and they intermarried. And not only that, not only had they intermarried, but as is written here, they had become so entangled with the culture that Nehemiah tells us that they could no longer speak the language of Judah. Now, that might be something that you could easily gloss over, but to this point, I want you to hear what one commentator wrote. He said this, this statement was indicative of the fact that God's people were raising up a generation of children who had no regard for God or their religious heritage. In fact, they had lost their heritage that made them uniquely the people of God. That's what had happened in Jerusalem. After 12 years of pouring in, pouring his heart into them, leading them, calling them to be all in, calling them to worship, Nehemiah found them right where they began. So as Nehemiah shows back up, here's what he's witnessing in Jerusalem. It's the same thing that Peter witnessed as he wrote in 2 Peter 2, verse 22. Here's what he says. Peter writes this, of them the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mud. Right, is that not the story of humankind? Maybe you feel that too. It's, it seems like every time I take a step closer to God, I find myself taking two steps back, right? There's those, the, those particular sins that we all battle with, we all struggle, understanding that nobody is perfect, and yet I take steps towards God only to find myself returning back to those same silly sins. Paul would write of that in Romans 7, and he says, man, the things that I want to do, I don't, and the things that I know I shouldn't do, I do. He's talking about the human condition, this very same problem that we're seeing in Jerusalem. And so you may be asking yourself, well, how in the world does Nehemiah respond? So what does he do? After all of this, experiencing all of this in Jerusalem, seeing his people, those who I'm sure he had come to love, who he had poured his heart into and seen so many great things happen. They had accomplished the wall. The people had come together. It seemed like everything was so good. What happened? What happened? Well, here's what Nehemiah does. Five things, five things. I know my last sermon in this series, I'm giving you nine points. You got to bear with me. Here's what Nehemiah does. Number one, he comes in and he cleanses the temple. In verse eight, Nehemiah is so angry, he throws out all of the household furniture of Tobiah. He throws it out of the chamber. And then it, the text says in verse eight that he gave orders and they cleansed the chamber and they brought back there the vessels of the household of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I mean, you can picture this, right? Nehemiah shows up and, and he's expecting, you've got to imagine, he's expecting the people to be all together, right? To continue where they left off. But instead, it's quite the opposite. He shows up in the temple, the enemy of God whom he has battled with and fought with his entire time in Jerusalem has now made a home in the temple of God. And so he walks in there and he cleanses the temple. He takes out all of the furniture of Tobiah, throws it out on the yard, right? I can imagine Tobiah shows back up and he's like, hey, wait a minute, what's the deal? So Nehemiah, he cleanses the temple and then he restores all of the elements of worship back in the temple. He restores the offering. He restores the storage room where it's gonna hold all of the, the offerings and the finances to take care of the people. He begins setting up reforms, 
But then secondly, here's what he does. He confronts the temple leaders. So he cleanses the temple, and then number two, he confronts the temple leaders. In verse 11, this is, this is what he asked them. It's a really great question. The text says, I, I confronted the officials, and here's what I asked. Why is the house of God forsaken? How in the world have you allowed the people of God to forsake the household of God out of all the things that you could do? You had one job, one job. You had to just maintain the purity and the holiness of God's temple. And what did they do? They had failed even to do that. And so like the temple, he gathers up leaders, he appointed and restored the officials back to their roles in the work of God. And then thirdly, Thirdly, he goes from the temple leaders and then he confronts the nobles. He goes to the influential people of the day and here's how he confronts them in verse 17. The text says, then I confronted the nobles of Judah and I said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? And notice what he says, did not your fathers act in this way and did not our God bring all of this disaster on us and on this city? Wow, what a great question. Nehemiah looks at the influential nobles of the day and he says, how in the world could we repeat history like this? You know how we got in this mess in the first place and yet here we are. How could you have allowed this to happen? Right, after all that we've been through, being pushed into exile, Babylonian army coming through and wiping out everything that we know and love and yet here we are again living in our ruins, living in our own spiritual ruins. Needless to say, I think Nehemiah is highly, highly upset. But here's where he begins to lose his mind. See, there's a difference between being angry and being sinful. That's why Jesus says, be angry, but do not sin, right? Well, here's where Nehemiah fails. After that, he literally loses his mind. From there, his confrontation leads to threats. And what we're gonna see here in a minute is that his threats lead to assault. <laughs> leads to assault. So number four, here's what happens. He threatens those who disregard the Sabbath. So Nehemiah, he, he moves from confrontation to now all of a sudden now he's threatening people. You'll see it in verse 21. The text says, I warned them, I told them, why do you lodge outside of the wall? If you do so again, I am gonna lay my hands on you. Nehemiah is so upset that he is ready to put on some boxing gloves and get into the ring with some of these people. He is physically upset. By now, he's so frustrated the people who refuse to honor the Sabbath that, that, that these people, here's, here's, let me back up, here's what's happening. So you have a whole host of people who are not part of Jerusalem, who are living outside of the walls of Jerusalem, who are sitting outside waiting for the walls of Jerusalem or the, the gates of Jerusalem to open up so that they could come in and they can sell their goods. And because it's a Sabbath, it's a great business day, great business opportunity. So Nehemiah goes outside of the walls, says, hey, listen here, let me, let me establish something. We don't do business on Sunday. We don't do business on the Sabbath, right? And so he says, no, we're not doing that. If you do, I'm gonna lay my hands on you. Now, here's the straw that broke the camel's back for Nehemiah. You ready for this? This is point number five. Point number five is his confrontation leads to assault on those who had intermarried. So it wasn't the Sabbath day. It wasn't with the fact that they weren't keeping the Sabbath that, that caused him to lose his mind. It was the fact that they had intermarried with the culture. In verse 25, 
The text says, I confronted them, and then hear this, then I cursed them, and then this is where it gets good. You ready? And I beat some of them, and I pulled out their hair. That's weird. That's weird. So later on, what he's going to end up doing, he's going to make them make another oath. He's going to gather them all back together. He's going to make them make another oath. Hey, I'm not going to intermarry. I'm not going to intermarry. And yet what we find out is that over and over and over again, the people of God continue to fail. They continue to fail. And so finally, here's what ends up happening. Nehemiah closes the story with reforms. And then the story ends with him saying, well, I've done all I can do here. God, remember me for my good. That's how the story ends. That's how Nehemiah comes to a close, is him beating people and ripping out their hair and then going to God and saying, God, well, I guess you're just gonna have to remember me for my good. I mean, if you're like me, after what we've been through in these, these, these 52 days of seeing the people of God come together and the wall being built, all these things happening, the people coming together and being all in, the story ends with him beating up people and pulling out their hair and the people of God back in their ruins. And I don't know about you, but I'm one of those people who I, I love a good story. Don't get me wrong, I love a good story. But I'm also one of those people who like at the end of a story to, for it to all come to a conclusion. And I want a finely wrapped bow wrapped on that conclusion. That's, that, that's how I prefer to watch a movie. And so you may be asking yourself the same thing. Is this really how this story ends? Hopeless? With a big question mark? Maybe you're asking yourself, well, well, whatever happened to Nehemiah? I mean, did the, did the people respond? Did they follow the, the reforms that he set up? I mean, so what's next? But here's, here's what I think is the point of the story. I think the point of the book of Nehemiah and the point of the story is this. The book of Nehemiah leaves us with a big question mark because the story is to be continued. It's a story that's to be continued. And so as we conclude today, here's what happens. We conclude with the black screen with the words to be continued on the screen. That's how Nehemiah ends. It's a story of humankind. It's a story of real people, real events, but it tells us a story of who we are and how humankind is broken. It's a story that reminds us that no matter what we do, we can never live according to God's standard. It reminds us of what Paul writes in Romans chapter three, verse 23, when he said that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us, every single one of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And so at the end of the day, no matter how hard we try, no matter how many rules we follow, no matter how much experience we find on this life or we achieve on this earth, no matter how good our leaders are, we can never live up to God's standard that he has for us. That's the story of Nehemiah. But at the same time, it's also a story of hope. It's a story of hope. See, for Nehemiah points us to our desperate need for a leader a leader who can not only lead us, but also a leader who can come and lead us out of our ruins and into the way everlasting. And so what we're gonna find over the next couple of weeks is that right now this story is to be continued. 
But over the next couple weeks, as we look to Palm Sunday next Sunday, and then also as we follow that up with Easter, as we are gonna bring this story to a conclusion, as we recognize that the leader who the people of Israel needed back then is the same leader that you and I need today. And his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. It'll be Jesus who leads us out of our ruins and into the way everlasting. Okay, so here's what I wanna do. I want us to take some time together. I want us to pray as we have been doing. I want us just to ask the Lord to move amongst us as we prepare our hearts for Easter. With every head bowed, every eye closed, here's what I want us to do. I want us to go to the Lord and I want us to do something simple. I want us just to acknowledge him. So in the quietness of the moment, I want us to acknowledge the faithfulness of God, the grace of God, and I want us to recognize the kindness of God this morning. God, you are faithful. We wanna say thank you for the grace that you've given us and the kindness that you've bestowed on us. God, that while we live in our own ruins, you have not forsaken us, nor have you given up on us. So Father, we thank you for that. And number two, I want you to confess areas where you find yourself still living in those ruins, where you have returned back to some of the areas in your life where, where maybe you're far from God, where your heart seems to be far from God. And maybe this morning you have to ask God, hey, you know what, God, what, what are the ruins that I'm living in? Help him to open your eyes to see them, to identify them in your life. And then take some time to just confess those to him. Remember, confession is just simply agreeing with what God already knows about you. And so you're just agreeing with him and saying, hey God, I see that too. I see it in my life too. And I wanna confess and I wanna be restored back to you. And now I want you to take some time and I just want you to thank God that the story of Nehemiah is not over and that your story is not over either. That God will, in fact, finish what he has accomplished or what he has promised in us.
Now finally, here's what I want us to do. I want us to set our eyes on Palm Sunday. The very day that Jesus is gonna enter into Jerusalem as our king, the one who has come to pull us out of our ruins. There's so many things that comes with Easter, so many good things, so many misplaced things. And so God, we just want you to focus our hearts on the coming of your son Jesus. God, we ask that you would reorient our eyes, our hearts on you. God, we know it's a busy season, it's a busy time, so Father, I pray that over the next couple of weeks we would just stop, we would slow down long enough to set our eyes on you. Maybe even to take some time and, and to continue to reflect on the ruins that, that, that maybe we're walking in or we're living in. Recognizing that there's no way that we can get out of our ruins on our own. Any more than the people of God living in Israel could get out of their own ruins. Father, neither can we. And we are in need of help. As we sang earlier, God, we need you. We need you, and so Father, we just ask that you would come amongst us, God, that you would set our eyes, that you would focus our attention on Christ, his coming, recognizing that while Friday is coming, so is Sunday, so is your resurrection, and it's through your resurrection, Father, that we have the power to walk out of the grave in the power of the Holy Spirit so, Father, we thank you for that. Just spend some time thanking him. Worship team, if you guys would go ahead and come on up as I conclude. God, we love you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for the fact that you're the God who never gives up, who never grows weary, who never gets tired. God, you are the God who leaves the 99 to go after the one. God, as we studied in the book of Nehemiah, God, there's so many great things that happen. The people come together God, they rebuild the wall in just 52 days, which is incredible. But yet over and over and over again, we see them time after time returning back to the ruins right where you have found us. And God, is that not our story as well? God, that while you come and you've given your son for us, God, so often we run right back to our own ruins, right back to our own ruins. And so, Father, this, this Easter season, God, I pray that you would Focus our time, focus our attention on helping us run to you, run to your son. God, that we would leave the chains behind us, that we would run without growing weary, 
and that, God, you truly would rescue us from our ruins. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he has given his life for us to lead us out of the grave and into the way everlasting. God, may we embrace that this season. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would like more information, please visit fbbelton.org or call our church office at 254-939-0705. We are located at 506 North Main Street. We hope to see you soon.